gentlemen, welcome to a, another edition of the Corner Store Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Koval. In the building, Mercedes Zapata. Mercedes, are we, we're going to get you a microphone at some point. Do you want to say hi so people can just hear your voice? Hello, I'm Mercedes. <laughs> she has that's, such a nice voice. That's your radio debut? But, yeah, Fantastic. right. Yeah, it happened. Um, you are listening to uh, a, a legend, someone who I, I love very much. Um, Likewise. Uh, a... I, you know, I would say like the last great newspaper men in the city, but someone who that's not saying much as newspapers continue anymore. to that's shrink true. and yeah, shrink no. and shrink. But but in a particular tradition, I, I I love the way that Rick Kogan loves the city and particularly puts on for working people in this city, in the tradition of Algren and Turkle and Wells and and so so many. But but Rick is is the embodiment and kind of the 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 owner of a particular legacy. Uh, Rick Kogan is also the reason why the corner store is on WGN Radio. So Rick, welcome into. Yeah, I haven't gotten store. any royalty checks yet. I know, that's true. <laughs> that's either the only problem. <laughs> Big time radio is such a gold mine for creative people. No, I, I, I remember when you pitched that idea, and I put you together with Todd Manley, who used to run this station, and he loved it. No, I know. And I, 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 pre- I mean, but you, you've been a, a longtime supporter of mine, and, and uh, in this form, but also as a writer, as an educator, as an well, organizer I mean, I, in the city. I, I take great pride in, in being a, when I was much younger, being there for the first, first, louder than a bomb at the old bygone That's hot right. house. I was, I was much younger too. Yeah, now I can't even get tickets to it. <laughs> it's, such <laughs> a, it's such a worldwide phenomenon. It really is an incredible thing for those people out there. I, I'm pretty sure if you're listening to Kevin's podcast, you know something about louder than a bomb. But it is the most empowering activity for young people used to think years ago oh play sports play football do this i mean that's kind of vanishing but to get up on stage and have your feelings move people is an astonishing thing to see well i appreciate that and i I appreciate all all you've done for me but i want to i want to talk about you my my, one of my goals this uh in in our conversation is to actually get to ask you questions get to know me (laughs) get to know me and not not have you flip it but before we start you know mercedes went to great lengths to secure some snacks for you out the corner store so uh we give all of our guest snacks um you can share them you can eat them now so bad now i have a show on this very station i don't give people anything that's what well look we we got i have given some people some people who need it cab fare back and forth from wherever they came from but generally it's like uh most people come in the studio and go like yeah do you have like any water i could have and i go oh yeah down see we, we need to we, we, we no, what are my snacks <laughs> all right so we, we got for you some uh mercedes got for you some uh smart food white cheddar gluten-free popcorn um, okay i don't know I don't what gluten free is okay. but right, yeah, maybe i can eat this okay yep and then in addition uh you know i like this drink my dad drinks this uh, the arnold palmer light half and half iced tea lemonade <laughs> this is great yeah all right okay, so just, and, you know, let me just keep these feel some free. Kind of, or i may donate to them to the broadcast museum <laughs> There's only a few blocks from here at Marina Right, exactly, City. exactly. You, you know, the interesting thing, the Broadcast Museum is starting to do, you know, when they first started, it was, hi, come to the Broadcast Museum and see, like, Bozo's shoes and right. Ned Locke's hat and, uh, you know, Jory Luloff's uh, uh, eyebrow pencil. But <laughs> they, they're starting to do more active things now. They had a, an event just about a week ago with Jim DeRogatis. And Mary Mitchell talking about Jim's R. Kelly book, yeah, and th- that's a that's a sort of expansion of their what was a kind of limited series of public events. No, which is smart. Of course, you have uh, you'll have a you already have like a permanent a booth there, uh, a exhibition on my the ready. Broad, my broadcasting career was <laughs> minimal. I did for a while. I was, and it was a great when I was a freelance writer. I was making a hundred dollars for a story for the Tribune, and got hired to be a freelance entertainment reporter. You may not know this about me for uh, Channel Two, when Linda McLennan and Lester Holt were anchoring the afternoon news. And the afternoon news—they were the first ones, I think, to go an hour long. So they needed to fill space. And I interviewed on their first trip to Chicago. The Joe Brothers, this incredibly sure. talented pair of Asian artists who now have taken over half of Bridgeport. And I will never forget that we're, Linda McClellan and I are sitting on a stage live at Taste of Chicago. 
And someone had booked the Joe Brothers, and they came up, and they sat down, and we realized almost immediately that they do not speak English. So Linda and I are both doing things in typically sort of racist fashion, going, how do you like hot dogs? Right, speaking louder. Is screaming, gonna be- <laughs> screaming, because that will help them understand what we're saying. Uh, they were charming guys, but it was one of the strangest interviews I've ever done. Wow. It was a great freelance gig, and it lasted until I got hired as TV critic for the Tribune. So, all right, so let's go back, right? Because you have also, you, you come from Chicago royalty, right? Well, Your parents are uh, yeah, very important figures. Chicago royalty via the, the uh, Eugene O'Neill side of the right. uh, royal family. Right, right. But, but yeah. Who, uh, well, my father was a newspaper man and an author of many books about Chicago history. So I was infused with that from my earliest day i mean i literally remember it may be apocryphal but i don't think so that the first sound that i ever heard was the sound of a typewriter wow him sitting in his office in our old town apartment typing away on these books yeah and so and the house was filled my mother was at the time when i was little uh head of public relations for the art institute so we had in our and 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 they were both and I've heard them called bohemian, and I hate, I hate, I hate that word. Uh, they had friends who were writers and artists and musicians and, you know, the, the sort of formation of the Old Town School of Folk Music sort of started in our apartment with Winstrocky talking to Studs Terkel and banging around ideas. And what they would do, however, is bring, <laughs> they'd walk back, it was a very small apartment, two-bedroom railroad flat, and my mother would come wake up me and my younger brother Mark and say, okay, kids, time to get up, time to say say goodbye to all the nice people. And we're like, we weren't like, we were like, Mom, we're sleeping. (laughs) And so in our little pajamas covered with cars or cowboys or whatever it was, we'd be dragged into this living room that was filled with smoke and the sound of ice clinking against glasses and some music. And we would have to say goodbye or good night to all of these adults. You know, Mort Saul, they star-studded. Mort Saul, Marcel Marceau was my favorite of these guys because he was a mime, the world's <laughs> most famous mime. And he would do things that amuse little eight-year-old Rick and seven-year-old Mark. And there was, I mean, I, I know from some of the stories you've told or I've heard you tell or have written about, um, I mean, you had writers that you came to admire eventually in, in the kitchen well, as well. Well, there's some that I came to hate, too. I, I came to personally hate Nelson Algren because he he dated my aunt, my mother. And he, my mother always said, well, Nelson dated Ginny because, uh, because I wouldn't sleep with him. And I'm 14. I go, Mom, I don't want to hear these right, kinds of stories. That's a lot stories. of information. Why are you saying yeah. this? And Ginny later in life would tell me, told me that he was just a horrible horrible person to her so that has ever shadowed my memories of nelson is he a good writer yeah did he kind of waste his career yeah yeah but he wrote some good stuff yeah certainly and studs of course course, was uh was good friends with your dad great friends with my father right They, they had met in the late 40s at a place called ricardo's which no longer exists but was a bar restaurant at the corner of rush and hubbard and became close friends you know sort of both some quasi jewish intellectuals uh herman of course my dad had fought in world war ii and studs had not but they became incredibly close and studs was the guy who i don't know if this tradition still exists anymore the night i was born at wesley memorial hospital which does not exist anymore studs is the guy who came over and herman herman you got a kid let me buy you a drink let me buy you a drink. And they went out for a drink, which I, I, I think is a great rite of passage of some sort. Yeah, it must be. Uh, so in, in essence, I, someone would say, like, how long have you known Studs? Go, well, actually, since the night I was born. Yeah, you do a great impersonation, by the way. Your yeah, Studs impersonation is really The right funny on. thing is I could do impersonations of sometimes Royco, Cup, Ann Landers, and Studs. And there's so little market for that. <laughs> Can you see, like Vegas, Rick Kogan, the new, the new Rich Little performs his studs, Mike Royko, Irv cups in it, and Ann Landers for you. Uh, <laughs> it'd, be big, it'd be big for like an afternoon show at the Chicago History Museum, maybe. 
It might be. You're right. No, Kevin, you're right. See, you're you're the producer. You're the genius producer. Yes, we interrupt louder with a bomb. Uh, please welcome Rick Kogan. He's going to read an old Ann Landers column in Ann Landers' voice. Once, when I was doing an imitation of Epi, her real name was Epi Letterer, at some library uh, I don't know, in the suburbs, I started doing the the imitation during a you know random spontaneous talk, and this woman in the front row, I see hear her say to her neighbor, the person sitting next to her, "I think he's having a stroke. I think he's having a stroke." Because Epi used to talk like this, <laughs> and she would say, "Now Rick, uh, I'm thinking, wait a minute." So I had to stop and go, "No, I'm not having a stroke." So subsequently, every time I would imitate Ann Landers. Before the crowd, I'll say, I'm, I'm going to sort of uh, give you Ann Landers and the way she talked, but I'm not having a stroke. I've had to do it that That's way. a good bit. <laughs> now, your dad, of course, is is a really important historian in the city yeah. and a keeper of Chicago stories. No question. If you were raised in that kind of household, some kids would maybe veer off and become investment bankers or what have you. You, oh my God, my father would be spinning <laughs> in was, his grave right. if I'd become... He but, would like it if I had money, because he did tell me, he did tell me when it was sort of obvious to him after I dropped out of college that I was not going to be an investment banker or a doctor or anything else that took a college degree. He said, you know, I got to tell you, there's, there's, there's no money in journalism. I said, that's okay. But you took up his, his, his torch. Yeah, and he imbued me... You know, I was reading papers from the time, you know, you, you start in the old-fashioned way. I don't know how kids do it today, but you start with comics, and then maybe you move to sports pages, and then you find something else to read and something else to read, and you eventually realize what a wonderful thing, what an incredible kind of daily miracle this thing called a newspaper is. It doesn't have the same impact for me online, but maybe it does for kids, and maybe when online uh, journalism and newspapers gets a little more... Uh, uh, accessible it it might but yeah i think he, he was kind of proud i think when i first got in the business i mean he always thought i could write and how did that ha- how did that start to happen for you when when did you begin to take yourself seriously as Funny a writer you should ask i never actually i still don't take <laughs> myself seriously as a writer how many books uh, how many books in? How many millions about 12 but there, none of them are serious uh <laughs> The next one that I'm going to write with you will be, be a serious, okay. a serious venture. The first story I ever wrote, I, I wrote a couple pieces for my high school newspaper. I, I was kind of on the staff of the forum at the Latin school, and they were. One was, "Hey, where are you?" I, I can't remember exactly. Where are you, people? We're we're playing our hearts out every Saturday in the Independent League football, and no one's there but, you know, Mr. Cangelosi and a couple of bums. Uh, and then another one I wrote. I wrote a review of Tom Wolfe's Electric Kool-Aid Acid Oh, wow. Test. You know, 68, yeah. 69. Right, of course, yeah. yeah. Favorable review. Was that, that must have been uh, contested if you were writing about that book well, or but, the school but paper. But the other thing, here's my life. I'm saying, Dad, I'm writing a, a story about this book that I found in the living room, and it's really cool. It's about these guys and a bus called Further and all this stuff. And he goes, well, would you like to, would you like to talk to Tom Wolfe for, <laughs> your, for your story? I go, huh? He's the guy who wrote it. He goes, oh, I've known him for years. So I, I did. I called Tom Wolf, And I, it was my first interview was like, hi, Mr. Wolf. I, I really like your book. And the answer was the first words ever spoken to me in an interview was, thank you. Thank you, Rick. How old are you? Uh, but then my first piece, and I remember, you'll know why I remember it. My father used to play tennis with a man named Jim Hogue, who was the sort of Robert Redford-looking, dashing editor of the Sun-Times. And we're I'm dry, I'm dr- driving them up to play on Fullerton under the L. They used to have tennis courts under the L at Fullerton and Sheffield. And Jim says, how old are you now, Rick? I go, I'm 16, Mr. Hogue, 16. And he says, so, you want to review a book for the Sun-Times? Yes, Mr. Hogue, yes, I do. Uh, okay, I was talking to the book editor. We need a, a teenager to review this book. And it was a book titled How to Get a Teenage Boy and What to Do with Him When You Get Him. I cannot, I think her name was Ellen Peck. It was kind of a 
uh, Dr. Ellen Peck. And I savaged. The, it's the worst review I've ever written about all the theater I've covered, all the movies, all the TV shows. It, it, I savaged this book. It, it, it was like, who is this? Well, she doesn't know what she's talking about. I'm a teenage boy, and you know, throwing your handkerchief down to make me pick it up is a bad way. Whatever nonsense was in the book. And it was on a full page of the Sun-Times with a huge, huge, like my class photo, a huge photo of me. And I was, I was, I was so embarrassed at the school. But other places, I was even more embarrassed thinking, Oh, my God, this is what newspapering's like? And that was the first. That was the beginning. The, very, the beginning of this checkered career, yes. It was the beginning of this very checkered career. So you did graduate from Latin. Yes. And then you started to go to school, to college. I did. Uh, I got in a kind of jam at Latin that cost some money, and it was uh, one day on some podcast. Okay. I'll tell that story. Oh, wow. Uh, and so I decided, well... You know, my father had paid all this money for this trouble I was in. And so I said, well, I'll go to Circle. Because my uncle, Bernard, my father's brother, is the head of the English department there. And it costs like, I don't know, 35 cents a quarter or something. I went there. And was it at the pier at that point? No, no, no it was, it was, it was split. Okay, it was, yeah, yeah. Just, they, had just, they had started building Circle Campus. And it was just like this kind of bizarre, futuristic uh, wasteland and my first class was a rhetoric class with a woman named Mrs. Chesterton. And we were assigned to read something like, uh, you know, the Red Badge of Courage. And I'm like, well, Mrs. Chesterton, I read this as a freshman at Latin. Well, uh, what I want you all to do is write a, write a story, right? It was a pretty creative class. Write a story about and be as creative and wild as you want about how you got to school today. And we did. <laughs> wrote it and she goes are you bernard kogan's nephew i go yeah she goes this story is unbelievable it's so good and blah 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 she goes look I, i'm gonna get you a place out of this class you, you don't belong in here and so we had to take the next week of sort of spelling grammar test and the the arrogant ass that i was at 17 well you can actually swear on this yeah you? yeah you can and swear the arrogant you yeah. asshole i yeah, was sure, at 17 I said, I'm not going to take it. You know that I know how to, you know, I know. She goes, no, Rick, please, just take the test. And I'll get you into, like, a junior English. I go, no, uh, no. You know, no, I'm not going to bow to the establishment or whatever nonsense I said. And she went, I, I didn't do it. And as a result, I got, we got an F or something and then just hung around for the next month. Meeting people and not going to classes, and then eventually had to tell my father. You weren't going to. God love him. Oh, my God. Here's a guy whose uncle's the head of the English department. He and, he and, his, he and his brother are, are intellectual giants of this city. Your and dad I'm at saying, that point is working for? He is then working for the Sun-Times as okay. a book editor and arts editor and has a show on WFMT about books and authors. And I go to my dad, I sit on the porch, he goes, is everything okay? And I go, yeah, yeah, I just, I just, I'm really bored with school, Dad. We're reading books that I read five years ago. And, and uh, he was a three-year Phi Beta Kappa from the University of Chicago, traveling there in the, in the, during the Depression from his mother's house in Rogers Park to the U of C, working midnight to eight as a reporter for the city news bureau and i'm like that makes abraham lincoln look like he's a, you know, a, a trust fund baby uh and he could have guilt tripped me back in the school in a second had he said i really want you to go back to school instead he says what do you what do you want to do and I had no idea because I hadn't planned that he would ask me that question i said well dad you know what i really want i want to drive a cab and he goes, okay. That is the life-changing moment in my life. Wow, that's amazing parenting. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So you drove a cab? I drove a cab. For how long? About two years on and off. How was uh, that? Uh, <laughs> disappointing on one level because I thought there was an old garage on North Park. It was between North Avenue and Eugenie, and it ran from North Park 
all the way through to Wells Street. Hundreds of cabs. And I like the guys who, I like my uh, fellow cab drivers because at the time, not to bore your listeners, but at the time, it was a real job. A cab driver made 42.5% of whatever clicked on the meter, kept all of their tips, and the company paid for gas. Now every one of these, you can't make a living yeah, driving. Can, no, can't, exactly. can't be done. Yep. Too many ride share and all that. Like nonsense. so many jobs now. Yeah, you can't, you no can't make a living. You yep. can't. You yep. cannot make a living driving a cab, and you could then. So there were all these older cab drivers around who would tell stories about this and stories about how old town changed and stories about uptown bars. And I love that, but I thought that this would give me great material for future novels. So virtually everybody who got in my cab got the hello, you know, take me to, you know, LaSalle and uh, LaSalle and Adams. Like, okay, why are you going there? Do you work near there? Uh, 95% of everybody said, look, just shut up and drive. Shut up. I got no stories. No stories. A couple guys robbed a grocery store, <laughs> thanks to me, <laughs> on Sheffield. Uh, Sheffield, just north of Belmont. You were the, uh, unbeknownst go, to you, you yes. were the lookout driver? Yeah. I oh. go, they go, hey, man, pull, pull up right here, but don't leave. Don't leave. We got to go get some stuff. And they went in, and I watched them rob this place and uh, see the guy screaming. And they get in the cab, and they go, 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 go. And I'm, like, I'm sitting there going, where? Where, where do you want to go? Uh, yeah, that was – but it, but it was an interesting job. I yeah, mean, I sure. liked it. I was writing terrible short stories. And uh, Was that was that your first uh, – that was your first thought to become – My first profession? To, to become a novelist. Yeah. 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 I didn't think – you know, I didn't want to put the arm on – well, you couldn't get hired by the Sun-Times or Daily News uh, due to nepotism rules. So what did I do after driving a cab? I'm about 20. I'd take off and go to Europe with the notion I had saved $1,000 a long time ago. And I was able to buy a round-trip ticket good anytime from anywhere. It was like TWA for $120. So I had that going for me. Yeah. So I go to Europe. Wander around England for a little while, go to France, drive down, dr- take the train down. Oh, no, no, I'd gotten a, I would bought a car from the people who ran this hotel in England. I had no driver's license. I didn't know anything. But eventually wind up in uh, Monte Carlo. And I have one suit. I have a khaki suit. And I think this is, I'm, I'm destined for this. I go in the casino, the main casino in Monte Carlo, and I'm looking around and getting the scoop of it and having too many drinks, and I place 500 I had $1,000. I place $500 on red in roulette and lose. I, have, I can't remember ever being so stunned, so stunned that this like, French man and his wife bought me more drinks at the bar. <laughs> I look at a map and say, man, I have $500 now. And I told everybody, all my friends here, I'll be gone for at least a year. (laughs) At least a year. So I'm like, oh, man, $500. So I look, and there's Greece. I know that Greece is pretty cheap. And then I know, well, Spain's pretty cheap. So I drive this car to Spain, stop at a little place outside of Madrid called Guadalacara, as in Mexico, drive the car into Madrid the next day, where it conks out in the middle of a Madrid rush hour, and I just walk away. I have one suitcase, not even a suitcase, it was a duffel bag kind of thing, and I walk away. Now I have no car, and I have $490. So, not to belabor the whole story, take a train, take a train down to Malaga. <clears throat> I'll find a place to live here, it's cheap here. And I start walking east from Malaga, and at the time it would be, I don't know what it's like now, but it would have been like walking into Gary at its height. I'm going, it's like all industrial. It's not the charming Spain that I've been led to believe exists. I'm so depressed. I get on a bus going west uh, in the middle in the morning comes, and it's coming over this hill and coming down, and there is this like postcard little town called Estepona. And I get out, and I wander around. It's a small, sleepy village. Franco was still alive. And I walk into this place. There was a series of, of, of buildings that I'd seen on the coast called Sofico, like a condominium complex or something. And I walk in, 
talk to the guy, I need a room, and he, I understand, I don't speak Spanish, and he has bullshitted someone into believing that he speaks English. So we're just back and forth. He he finally tells me that it is it is uh, $40, I go, for a week? No, no, $40 for a month. And I go, really? And I'm trying to make sure this is correct. So I give him $400, almost all the money. I have like $80 left for 10 months rent. He is beyond thrilled. The biggest sale of his life, maybe certainly, certainly before and probably since. And he takes me up to this apartment. It is right on the beach. There's a two-lane road and a beach. And out the window, where he takes me up to the second floor. It is a beautifully furnished kitchen, one-bedroom apartment, little balcony with at about a 45 degree angle to the right the rock of gibraltar oh sitting God. yeah so i lived there for 10 worked, months yes worked, worked worked in bars there were some <laughs> very funny there was it was kind of sad though it, it, there were three restaurants the one that was bar restaurant la manzana meaning the apple <clears throat> and i worked there for food and a couple bucks whenever he had a couple bucks and they and two other couples there had been in business hoping that Franco died. So there would be, because there was going to be a tourist boom, no question. And so stayed there, wrote a couple travel articles that my father sold for me to the Tribune of all newspapers. Right. And uh, then came back. Wow. Well, that, that's a very formative experience. Oh, it was incredible. And you're, you're 18, 19 at that 20, point? 20, 20 at that point. 20. In 19 or 20. Yeah, yeah, it was a real formative experience because it taught me to, you know, I didn't know anybody there. I didn't speak the language. Did you develop uh, the ability yeah, well, to speak? I was pretty good yeah. at Spanish 20 years, 40 years ago. Yeah. But and met some interesting people. I mean, during the tourist season, you met all sorts of interesting people. And the people who stayed there in the off season, which literally begins like November 1st, it starts to sleet and it's 40 degrees. Uh, but it had, I had to... It taught me who I was on some level, Kevin. I, you know, not not forever, but it certainly yeah taught me that I could be self sufficient if yeah. I needed to be. But you can't. You came back. <laughs> yes, I ran out of. <laughs> well, but the, the the first piece I sold to the Tribune, I got a check. Father sent me a check. It was for a hundred and fifty dollars, and I thought, my God, that's like almost four months' rent. I mean, cigarettes were like fifty cents a pack, and drinks were free and it was it was uh glory days for a little kid right and it would were, be glory days for me now i know actually. for yeah. real yeah and you were you were writing these travel articles you were still no, i just wrote two travel articles one about dover england where i had been and another one about spain and wrote some unbelievably bad short stories because there's a, another thing about this apartment had a typewriter wow. i'm like yeah it was inc- it, it was yeah, astonishing yeah it really was like magic it really was magic yeah and so you came back and what'd you do when you came back uh my father thought what do you want to do i said well he said i think maybe you should go back to school i go okay I, you want to be a writer i go i, I think i do dad <laughs> empowered by by the teenage book and a travel story in the tribune and he goes, well, you know, why don't you go to Columbia? They're doing some really, my friend John Schultz is there, and he, we're doing some really interesting things. And so I go, okay, I'll try that. So I go to Columbia. That that, that college experience lasted one day. <laughs> I'm in a reviews and criticism course, and everybody there, the teacher, who I don't remember, uh, said, now, how many of you want to write for newspapers or write books? I raised my hand. What did the rest of you want to do? Why? Well, I want to be on TV. I want to do TV news and TV this and TV that. And I just, and so then I drove a cab for a little while longer and then got a job at a magazine that was just starting called the Chicagoan. This is in a day when the Chicago magazine was a little more than a guide to WFMT and WTTW programming. And thanks to Richard Christensen, the famous drama critic, who was the editor of that magazine, st- writing feature stories. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so... What- One just ripped 
my first major feature story was about how icy and cold and brutal was the campus of the University of Illinois in Chicago. <laughs> yeah, with my vast back. experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, my vast experience. And that lasted, you know, about a year and a half. And it was a very heady time. There were some wonderful people on that uh, magazine from whom I learned a ton. It came out weekly, monthly. monthly. It was a monthly. And it yeah. was really good. I mean, the, the, Dick Christensen, who had worked at uh, the Daily News, uh convinced Mike Royko, who really admired Dick, to write the first piece about Mayor Daley since Boss. Mm. And it was a big deal. And he really, Dick, it was a great magazine, but it was run by uh, John Anderson, his then wife, Abra Prentice Rockefeller Anderson, who was funding the thing. She had been a journalist here, and they, uh, their marriage started falling apart, and the magazine started falling apart. So then I went freelance for the Sun-Times for a while. And then I got hired by Bill Newman, the great M.W. Newman at the Daily News, and worked for the last six or eight months of that paper's existence in 1977-78 on the staff of Panorama, which was the first arts and entertainment section in American newspapers that had been started by my father in 1963. Oh, that's amazing. So that was a full circle. I should have killed myself when the Daily News folded. Uh, <laughs> Why? It was, it was such full circle. My oh, right. it would have been a panorama. Yeah, right. yeah. Well, you've had a, you've had a good run since then, so I'm glad <laughs> you, you didn't. Um, wait, how long have you been at the Tribune? Now? Like 31 years. Right. I know, which is really amazing. And how long have you been at GN? That's a good question. I don't know. Probably 20 years. Okay. Yeah. So you know the the big column at the Tribune is sidewalks. Yeah. How long has that been running? Well, one day, probably about. 15 maybe 20 and i was so bored i had been the the tv critic and then the editor of the then i became the features editor of the paper and i never should have done that but i wanted to see what it was like to be an editor and have every other every day oh i'm sorry i can't get that story and i like uh, i got drunk last night hey i'm sorry i'm having troubles with my wife i did not want to play psychiatrist to the staff and that's what that job entailed and uh so then one day I started writing for the magazine and I thought, well, nobody leaves the office here. <laughs> it was just astonishing. Everybody stays in the office. They make phone calls. They interview people on the phone. And so I said to Charles Osgood, uh, with whom I'd done a pretty remarkable story about Coco Taylor. I think remarkable because I somehow convinced Coco, who I didn't know before, to allow us, two guys she didn't know, to spend the entire day with her, meet her at her house. One of the great things about that story is Osgood's outside. He goes, oh, I've been here for a half hour. He goes, why don't you knock? Why don't you go in? What's the matter with you? So I knock, and Coco answers. This is, this is without argument, the most famous and successful female blues singer in the world at the time. Uh, sh she's in a, a bathrobe. Oh, man, is it today? Oh, I'm sorry. Look, I didn't dress up, and I didn't dress up. Uh, it's okay. I, I have to do the laundry, though. So you, you, have, you go in the kitchen and be with Pops. Her husband was named Pops. And her house was all, every piece of furniture was covered in plastic. It was fancy, but modestly so. That's <laughs> good. And I remember as we walk in the kitchen, Pops goes, who the fuck are you? I go, I'm recovering from the truth. I don't mean you. Who's this fucker with the cameras? I go, <laughs> I go, well, he's Charles Osgood. That's not his real name. I go, yeah, it is his real name. What do you mean? I don't like the looks of him. This is how the day starts. And Coco's down doing laundry in the basement. And so I finally calm Pops down where he accepts Osgood. And he, he says, you, you, want, you want some coffee? And he's watching like some soap opera in the morning on TV in their little kitchen. And I go, sure, sure. Uh, I'd love some. Hey, Mama. Screaming at Coco Taylor, hey, mama, where'd my coffee at? And Coco Taylor comes up. From, I'm sorry, pops. I'm sorry. I'll get your coffee. I'll get it right away. Uh, these boys want some. What? And then she's then he's going, looking at Osgood. Do you like the looks of him? <laughs> Look at that beard. I don't like that beard. And But we had an amazing time with her during the whole day going out to a concert at Northwestern. So I went to Osgood, back to the story, and uh said, you know what, Charlie, why don't we do something? Why don't you get a camera? 
I'll get a notebook, and let's get out of here. Let's just go see what's out there. And that's how it started, and that's how it did. There was not one day. Sometimes we'd drive. Most of the time we'd drive. Sometimes we'd walk, and we would say, wow, wonder what that is. Wonder who that is. Who's that guy? Was that was it an everyday thing? For no, it was once a week. Once a week, okay. Yeah, it was in the magazine, on the front of the magazine every week. And right. I, there was one thing. We'd be we'd, we're driving around, going west on the Eisenhower, and Charlie gets off, and it's a freezing, freezing day. And we pull off the exit ramp, and standing there is a guy in, like, four coats selling peanuts. And Charlie says, uh, I'm going to get some peanuts, and he gives the guy a buck. And we drive about 15 feet more, and we both look at each other and go, you know, God damn it, we didn't even say hello to that guy. or It's minus five out here. So we pull back up to him, and he looks terrified. You know, he gave us bad peanuts, or I don't know what the problem was. One of the most unusual people I've ever met, his name was Thomas Gaither, and he was on this ramp every day, except for Sunday, because that was the Lord's Day, and except for the half a day when his baby girl was born, he went to the hospital. And he's telling us this amazing story, and I am thinking to myself, not just about work ethic, but, you know, at work, you know, someone is complaining about, uh, I, I didn't get the right wine with my dinner last night. Uh, his wife had left him. He was incredibly proud that his two kids were in college, one of them going to medical school, and it was like life at a at a buck a bag. He'd been doing it for more than 30 years. And it's people like that. And you've, you've I mean, you've been privy to thousands of those stories you continue to shine light on those stories i mean they're not you know i gotta tell you something they're not as uh as uh liberally sprinkled around as they once were because this town is becoming you know people like that are getting pushed out of here there's no place for them to live i mean i think rom started this whole thing with yuppifying or manhattanizing this city it's very hard to get by on a buck a bag and make a life for yourself here. It may change, but I, you know, I, I have you know, some quiet faith in uh, Lori Lightfoot. But man, you get out, you get out in the neighborhoods too, Kevin. It's just you know, no, it's hard. There's, yeah, there's no, there's it, no middle class anymore, no, and, and no, no, no chance of it. No chance of it. Yeah. You're right. Unless you want to, you know, you should have pushed out of the scene. Unless you want to start a restaurant or something. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, but you, you've so you've been telling these kinds of stories for now a number of decades. Yeah. What 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 keeps you here? I mean, why? Because I because I, I always I keep hope. As Studs always said, "Hope dies last." It was the title of one of his books. That I hope that there is a Thomas Gaither waiting for me out there. You know, I just did a, a story about a guy I've known for many, many years named John Sauce, who works for Jam Productions, he's been around forever, who seven years ago started wandering the beaches and finding things and making them into beautiful kind of whatever he finds, he brings home, puts on a square kind of tablet and takes a picture of it. And it's now a, a show at Tony Fitzpatrick's gallery. Wow. And he, he was talking about how you know, the lake is trying to purge itself of all this junk that people throw in it. And it's a guy, you know, guy like that, yeah. a guy like that. So is that how you kind of walk about the city is kind of looking for something, someone yeah. that looks? Well, I mean, I, I like I like to think that in, a, <laughs> in the same way that studs uh, coined his own uh, epitaph uh, that I retained that it was you know, he'd say, no, Rick, when I die, I, and I'd always say, son, I want to hear about when you do. We spent an, an inordinate amount of time together after my father died, in part because Studs does, never drove, and I would drive him places. Uh, and after his wife Ida died, I wrote her obituary, she died on Christmas Eve. And for years after that, everybody thought, oh, Studs is going to go like this, because she basically dressed him. I mean, she picked out his outfit, familiar outfit, and... Uh, so one day he had her he had her ashes on the windowsill with a little next to a vase of daisies, yellow daisies. And one day he says to me, Rick, Rick, I got my epitaph. I got my epitaph. I go, what is it? 
curiosity did not kill this cat, which is awfully good and which has been used a number of times. <laughs> Once he got it, he used it. <laughs> he used it like crazy. It's a good one. Uh, but that's, you know, to be curious is to, is to remain alive. Yeah. I mean, all of us, I've been lucky in that, in that all of us, many of us, live very confined lives. You have your job, you have your favorite restaurants, you have your way to get to work, you have your way to, you know, who to date. And it's it's very confining. And I think it, for many people, it gives them a foundation. And I don't begrudge them that. But there's so much else out there. Uh, I did a piece when the Tribune moved into the uh, Prudential building from what is now going to be some of the most expensive condominiums in the world at the old Tribune Tower, I noticed, and I didn't notice them before, because I don't hate on the Prudential Building. Outside the Prudential Building in the Aeon Plaza, there are these three metal deer sculptures of deer. And I immediately knew that they were the work of Jack Carney, who was a noted but not celebrated Chicago artist. There, Some of you may remember there was a, one of them was a gorilla that climbed up a building on Aldine. Uh, he had a couple giraffes on Elaine Place. Uh, he has a couple statues in Oz Park. And Jack was such a fascinating guy. He used to he used to uh, display his work at the Old Town Art Fair, which was a block from where I grew up. So I've known known Jack for since I was five years old because he would let us climb on his beasts that he created out of chrome bumpers. That was his thing. So I wrote a piece about these three little deer that stand all alone. In winter, summer, spring, and fall, in the Aeon Plaza, mm-hmm. and it just—it's a matter of looking. And, and not, I knew what they were, but what I would like people to do is see something like that and go, "I wonder what that is," because y- you can the internet, which I—it's <laughs> a necessary evil, but you can find out. You can you can you can satisfy your curiosity but right I'm, away. What I'm finding is that people aren't curious the internet makes it so easy mm. to you know hey, the chicago river flows backwards i wonder why and then that's it go yeah, ahead and look wonder. it up and then we forget it or if we do look it up we forget it yeah you know because there's, there's too, mu- there's too much information at the right i mean remaining curious in this town is a is a is a joy for me because there's so many things well that i mean you've written about characters and in some ways the character of the city I hope so, yeah. And, well, it's sort of the threads. I mean, you know, I don't write about people who who deserve on any level front front page news, but their lives deserve to be noted somehow. Not in 10,000 words, maybe in 500, maybe in 1,000 words. They need to be noted because those are the people who are the threads of the fabric of this city. You know, you can have people like... Rahm Emanuel and uh, Mike Ditka and uh, all these other, you know, flamboyant, colorful characters. But the color and texture of what this city is is in those little threads that make it up. You know what I mean? I remember when I went down with you to uh, Team Englewood when uh, Matt Damon had come to town for an event for you, an event thrown by you. (laughs) Matt Damon came down there, and I think it was Matt Damon... And you and Malcolm London, a uh, very talented, charismatic young kid. And I mean, all the kids in the class, they like, who's Matt Damon, man? <laughs> Who, Jason Bourne what, man? There's Malcolm London. I just thought that said something. Matt Damon was incredible yeah. and a good guy. Yeah. But I thought it's not all about fame and celebrity, man. It's about what you do. Yeah. You know that. No, I mean, that's what, that's what Young Chicago Authors does, man. That's what Louder Than a Bomb does. So, what are you working on now? What did I write today? I'm working. <laughs> there was a guy. There's a new exhibit opening at the Newberry Library about a guy named John Fujita, who was the first Japanese American photographer to ever work for a newspaper. He was of the era that took uh, he took photographs of the Eastland disaster. Huh? He was the, one of the first people to take a photograph of the St. Valentine's Day massacre. 
And in reading about him, I realized how unbelievably hard it was to be a Japanese-American doing anything at the time. He also, he never married the woman with whom he loved because it was taboo. He also was an, an acclaimed, in small circles, poet. There's this, I'm writing about this sort of stunning show he has at the opening next week at the Newberry Library. They did a little thing about him at the Poetry Center, but it's another one of these characters. I mean, everybody, you know, God love Vivian Meyer, you know, but God love that whole story, and she is an unsung hero. But this guy was a guy who had, you know, she was a nanny, and she had a camera, and she took pictures. This guy had to fight all sorts of bigotry and uh, other troubles to do what he did. Yeah. What is your daily practice? I mean, you, you're writing, making something almost every day. Sort of. I screw around a lot too, like any anybody. Sure. In the newspaper. Yeah, but what, I mean, because I, I know you're at the you're at the the, the your office. Yeah, it's it sort of a cubicle. It's, okay. it's not even a cubicle. The new kind of Tribune is not even cubicle. Like they're just all these desks next yes. to each other. And it was supposed to be. I <laughs> someone who designed it had no idea what it was to be a newspaper person or be in a newspaper office. So I, I had heard that the philosophy is that this is the real collaborative kind of way to be. And if those people ever come back to the Tribune, then we'll see the people are collaborating out of their home, sitting in their right. pajamas because right. they don't want to come in. Right, because you can't work in that yeah, kind of space. Yeah, why bother? Yeah, it's crazy. It's yeah. crazy. Uh, I, I write something every day. Yeah. Whether and how do you, I mean, you, bunch of letters or you get up, stories. you have coffee. Well, like, what, what's your process, I guess? <laughs> My process. Uh, I'm not like you at that. You have a very specific yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, you know who that, there's a great story, too, about specific time. Gwendolyn Brooks, with our argument, one of the greatest uh, wordsmiths in the history of this town. You could not call her between noon and one. And everybody, when her daughter, Nora Brooks Brakely, told that story, people were like, oh, I, I understand, I understand. Uh, what would happen? And I asked her, some kind, I said, well, why not? What would happen? Oh, she'd answer the phone. But what she'd say is, all my children is on and slam the phone down. And I'm thinking now this human, Gwendolyn was a great person and a real human being, but this humanizes. Everybody's like, wow, I wonder why that was. Did she commune with Shakespeare or something? <laughs> no, she, she was hooked well, on all my children. You know, it's just, it humanized her for me. I never, I don't have a set routine. I mean, I, you know, I get up, go do some kind of exercise. I used to, God, I used to play tennis and handball with Royko for years who was better who was yeah we once had a contest he was a pretty good hand player handball player but mike did think he was a great athlete so we had to he goes you ever played handball i go no how hard could it be i played a lot of racquetball at the time how hard could it be have you ever played racquetball how hard could it be so we had a contest viewed at the old uh, lakeshore athletic club on wabash uh, viewed by dozens of fucking reporters, and I beat him. I beat him. I beat <laughs> at him. both racquetball and I handball. beat him badly at wow. racquetball, oh, wow. and I think I Mike was not a kid then either. You know, I was I was in my prime, Kevin. I was in my prime. Right. Nice. Um, well, look, I uh, you continue to kind of reorient me, you Good. know, and and rededicate me every time we talk and every time I read your work and and just you, you. you've really set such an important course for so many of us as someone who is dedicated to telling the stories the yeah. unsung stories of the city well the thing i i just hope that there are places to tell them i mean i know that that you, if you have a blog or you send email and do that stuff you can tell those stories but but one of the important things and one of the things that i'm so honored to have been able to do i mean there's still 450,000 human beings who get the Sunday Tribune, the paper paper, delivered. And they're not all reading what I write, but that is a huge, huge and important audience. And as the audience continues to fracture in this kind of new media age and seeks out voices that parrot their own ideas and their own thoughts and their own bigotry 
that tr- that's troubling to me. Yeah, no, me too. Well, I, I, well, you're finding a good fight with, with the kids, man, the kids. Well, and I, you know, but you also, uh, you know, you paved the way, you know, too, and so I'm, I'm grateful for that, and, well, and, 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 you know, just the continued relationship and guidance, and, and that you continue to do the work. You know, I think that's the big thing that you're, you're someone who. Well, if I can come on the air and get treats and and. Uh, get treats and have fun and uh likewise honey well anytime well thank you so much for being in the corner oh store i appreciate this you. was so hard this was so wait i want to say one more thing this sunday i, I can't remember sometimes when my stories uh, tomorrow whatever day that is uh there's i did a because the trimming doesn't do the number of obituaries that they should do i don't know why uh i did a sort of combined uh, obituary of two guys, one named Jim Shiflet, who I long forgotten now is a reverend, but in 1969 he opened a a sort of what he thought would be a community center on Lincoln Avenue, 2257 North Lincoln Avenue, that wound up pretty quickly becoming the Body Politic Theater, mm-hmm. and it is generally accepted in this town that that is the birthplace of what would be the astonishing Chicago theater community explosion. He did David Mamet's first play, and then he, you know, retired. <laughs> he retired, went back to the ministry, and he marched with Dr. King and another, he paired it with another very unusual guy named Jim Toohey, who was one of the, uh, he was a great writer, but Jim probably spent way too much time in town. Ta- he's famous famous in taverns uh jim too there's a great quote from jeff mcgill the longtime bartender at the uh billy goat that captures Tui precisely these guys i I wrote somewhere near the lead that they they seem they're so colorful and they seem of an era that seems further away than it actually is they seem out of another century Hmm. so someone will write that about me yeah. Thanks, Kevin. No, this thank was, you, Rick. This was really fun. Yeah, love really it. Thank fun. you so much, man. Shout out our super producer, DJ Cashera. Big up, boss man, Todd Manley. Thank you to our official corner store photog, Mercedes Zapata. Salutes to the snack door, Max. Also, please, y'all, follow our instagram it's corner underscore pod on ig on twitter tell us who you want to see in the corner store and also please consider dropping a couple of dollars into our patreon account it's patreon.com corner store underscore pod the corner store is brought to you by stolen spirits